Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no definitive knowledge on the topics I talk about. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself before sharing. If you find that I was wrong about something, please let me know so that I may correct myself. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I do swear and I don't bleep that stuff out. So listener discretion is advised. and this is episode 71 of Living Through Extinction, a short-to-the-point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. I've got a fairly short one for you today. I'll be talking about the return of polio to North America, getting gummy bears from wind turbine blades, vertical farming, and death cafes. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. So polio has once again landed on the shores of North America. Thanks, anti-vaxxers. This is all on you. Polio should have gone the way of smallpox years ago. When smallpox was tackled, everyone in all participating nations got the vaccine. Everyone. Today it only exists in labs. It was completely annihilated through science and the cooperation of the general public. Unfortunately, there has been a social devolution among the human race over the last few decades, which is making the public cooperation part of annihilating a disease impossible today. The U.S. has been polio-free since 1979, and if it weren't for anti-vaxxer movements, it would have stayed that way. Thanks to Wakefield's completely corrupt and debunked studies, and all of the people who blindly followed him in his corrupt debunked studies afterwards, all sorts of diseases have been on the rise since the 90s. But polio? This has to be the worst one yet to be making a comeback. Welcome to New York. On July 21st, 2022, the New York State Department of Health, NYSDH, and the Rockland County of Health, RCDOH, released a public alert about a case of polio in Rockland County. The virus was ID'd by NYSDOH's Wadsworth Center Laboratory, and then the ID was confirmed by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. That's good science. Confirmed by independent entities. It's so much better for all of us when scientific, especially medical scientific organizations work together than when we force them to guard their discoveries. This is yet another disease which we have had under control for so long that few people still exist who truly understand its horror. The symptoms of polio range from mild flu-like symptoms to death, and some awful possibilities have fallen between. On the mild side, people experience fatigue, fever, headaches, stiffness, muscle or stomach pain, nausea or vomiting, and a sore throat can also be an indicator. Because polio affects the brain and spinal cord, the serious effects people experience are life-changing, if not ending. One can develop meningitis, which is an infection of the covering of the spinal cord and or brain. One can develop partial or complete paralysis, leading to permanent disabilities or death. 5-10% to 10 of those who become paralyzed pass away when their breathing muscles stop working, unless they make it into an iron lung in time. As of 2014, there were still 10 people living in iron lungs. As of last year, there were still at least two. 
When is a Texas man who has lived 70 years of his life in one of these machines? This virus is highly infectious and can be spread even when carriers are showing no symptoms. And symptoms can take up to 30 days to appear. 30 days! If you were infected and didn't know it, how many people would you infect in a 30-day period? I bet it's a lot. I'm an introvert, and even I would end up infecting dozens of people. And those who got through it okay? Many of them thought they were home free until years later. PPS, or post-polio syndrome, is a disorder of the nerves and muscles which can first appear years after having recovered from polio. It's believed that when these people recovered, the virus didn't go away. It actually slept in their nervous systems until reactivated later in life. Another unconfirmed belief at this time is that polio caused the nerve cells to be overworked, and so they ended up degrading much more quickly than in people who had never had polio. Once PPS begins, it gets worse over time. Those affected experience exhaustion, muscle weakness, pain in both muscles and joints, trouble swallowing, sleep disorders, sensitivity to cold, and muscle shrinkage. It eventually, inevitably, makes it difficult for them to breathe. I remember when the H1N1 vaccines were first coming out. I asked an old workmate what he thought about the resistance to it. He's about 30 years older than me and said that he could remember very clearly how parents were nervous about him refusing the polio vaccine when it was first introduced and how more than one of these people he knew who didn't get it ended up in a wheelchair, in an iron lung, or passed away. He said the parents of those infected children ran out and got their remaining children vaccinated. He did not understand why people would refuse medical help in this way, especially here in Canada where we don't have to pay for it. He's retired, and I haven't talked to him for a while now, but I wonder how he feels about this recent outbreak of polio in New York. I bet that's one disease he never expected to return in his lifetime. And he wouldn't be alone in that. Most people believed it was handled. There were minimal cases in just a few places, most of which were isolated. But with today's anti-vaxxers, it was only a matter of time before this happened. It was only a matter of time before someone who wasn't vaccinated visited one of these places and brought it back with them. If only anti-vaxxer folk were more skeptical, damn it. Wind turbine blades can be recycled into gummy bears. How could I not look into that headline, right? Chemical engineers at the University of Michigan have developed a new recyclable composite resin which could be used to make turbine blades. When the blades made from this compound are decommissioned, the resin can be recycled into household items and treats. The resin can be mixed with various minerals and solutions at different temperatures to create different products from it. Things like countertops, car taillights, power tool shells, diapers, and gummy bears. One of the things they can produce from the blades is potassium lactate, which can be purified and made into sweets and sports drinks. I love that they're finding a way to recycle these blades as their disposal is the main environmental concern when it comes to wind turbines. But can we stick to the household items maybe? Do we really need more sweets that badly? I'm still not sure how I feel about this one. The term vertical farming was coined in the 1990s. At that time, those that started up did not do well. The tech was way too new and expensive. Today, thanks to cheaper lighting and cheaper, more readily available hydroponic equipment, they are finally ready to be a part of feeding our growing population. Interesting note, the cheaper lighting and hydroponic tech 
were results of research and development in the legal cannabis sector, so we kind of owe this step forward to good old weed. They still have some issues today, but as technology continues to get better and cheaper, vertical farms could have us eating fresher produce no matter where we live. God, imagine northern communities having access to fresh produce. That's fucking game-changing for people in Canadian northern areas. Also, with farmland and greenhouses being used to grow our food today, 50.5 million hectares of land are required. Our growing population needs a growing food supply to keep up, but we also, it would be nice to also have space. More food is needed, but do we really want to give up the amount of space that would be necessary? Or someday we'll find ourselves with the majority of the planet being used to feed people who are packed like sardines into smaller, highly populated areas. Today there is a growing demand from both the general population and governments for better food security and better access to fresh products. Especially now that we've experienced interruptions in supply chains and what the outcomes can be. By using vertical farming and controlling the light, temperature, water, and CO2 levels, these facilities can produce in a few miles what farms today are producing in thousands of miles for some products. More food production, less land use. That's a win. Due to the fact that they use techniques such as hydroponics and aeroponics, both soilless processes, their water and waste runoff is drastically less than traditional farming. Hydroponics is a word that means working water, and it's known to grow fruit and veggies at half the time of traditional farming. Hydroponics does use a medium for planting, but not soil. It's usually a porous material that can hold and release moisture and nutrients from the water solution. The nutrients are in the water, so they go directly into the roots for absorption. In soil, roots stretch out and grow in order to find nutrition to absorb. These plants don't have to use up any energy doing that so energy can go to the plant growth instead. Plants grown in this way thrive, experiencing rapid growth, providing stronger yields, and being of superior quality. And they use less space and 90% less water than plants and soil. Aeroponics uses no planting medium at all. The roots are exposed and dangling in the air where they're misted periodically with nutrient-enriched water. Seeds are planted in small pieces of foam to hold them in place as they grow. The roots come out one side and the plant comes out the other. The roots are exposed to the nutrient mixes and the plants are exposed to the necessary lighting. This closed loop system uses 95% less irrigation and there is no nutrient runoff because the nutrients are recycled with the water. I saw images of one such facility which had hundreds of columns, each with plants sticking out up and down and all around. That's a lot of plants in a small area. For us consumers, the benefit would be fresh and local produce, which could be acquired in any city at any time of year. Freshness and availability would be outstanding for urban folk like never before. And again, I have to mention the northern communities. Game changer. The food is harvested and sold daily, so it's always fresh and requires no preservatives, and it doesn't have to travel nearly as far in many places. So there's the environmental bonus for transportation. Vertical farms are already succeeding with non-flowering leafy greens and herbs, but soon we'll be growing all types of temperate crops, including wheat, soybean, potato, blackberry, and strawberries. Guelph, Ontario has a facility for Goodly Farms. They've been delivering local fresh produce to the Toronto area since July 2020, and they are building two more plants in the east and west, one near Montreal and one in western Canada that they haven't released a city area yet. Elevate Farms, previously Intervision Greens, can grow up to 454,000 kilograms per year of lettuce, arugula, basil, and other leafy greens. 
They have facilities in New Jersey and New Zealand, and our northern Canadian communities should be seeing them in the near future. They are apparently working with Whitehorse-based North Star Agriculture to develop and build cost-effective vertical farming facilities in the Yukon and other isolated First Nations and northern communities. This would be amazing. The prices they have to pay for produce which is far from fresh is absurd. More availability, more freshness, and more affordable produce. It can literally change the way some people eat for the better. These facilities can be in buildings, old mines, or even shipping containers. In Canada, one can get a Canadian-built container farm. I wish, but I'm pretty sure the price is outrageous. It's pretty awesome, though, if you can afford it, especially if you're in a northern location. A vertical, all-season farm built from a shipping container and shipped to your property. Oh, God, to be rich. These are 100% designed and built in Canada, so if you have the money, you should totally be doing this. Go to thegrocer.ca. That's the grow, G-R-O-W-C-E-R dot C-A. There will soon be a report put out by the USDA about the information accumulated at a series of workshops they held for both public and private sector attendees around vertical farming. They consisted of experts with presentations and group discussions around plant breeding, pest management, and engineering. Attendees worked together to identify challenges, requirements, and opportunities. When I eventually come across this report, I will have to do an update. Personally, I'm all for it. Instead of a Walmart in every neighborhood and every city, or maybe even beside every Walmart in every city, let's put vertical farming facilities. I know I'd rather get my greens fresh from a place like that than fucking Walmart or Superstore. I've been fascinated with the whole death cafe idea for years. The one time there was supposed to be one here in Winnipeg, it was cancelled and never happened, so I've yet to experience one. They began in England in 2011 and have since taken place in 82 countries. Death is a fear-inducing topic for many people, particularly those who understand that this is our one life, and when it's over, it's over. Coming to terms with one's mortality without believing in an afterlife can be very difficult for some. A lot of people who live with death anxiety don't have anyone they can talk comfortably with about it. And many of these folks have found it incredibly helpful to have conversations with others who share the same anxieties, or better yet, others who have overcome those anxieties. Death cafes are safe, informal places to have conversations around end-of-life issues. They do not involve advertising or agendas, just conversations. Their motto is drink tea, eat cake, and discuss death. And their aim is to increase awareness of death and death-related issues to help people make the most of their finite lives. Meetings are two hours long and tend to include 15 to 25 participants. They talk in smaller groups of four to six, and there's a facilitator or two present to offer prompts or short exercises if required to encourage or start the conversations. Participants have reported that this ability to discuss the subject in these cafes has helped them to transform their attitudes towards death. Many reported that simply the ability to share with strangers was comforting, and many say attending one of these meetings helped them to normalize death-related topics in their mind. There have been 14,852 death cafe meetings held so far, and if you are interested in attending one, or if you would like to host one, you can go to http colon slash slash deathcafe.com for all the details. If you're hesitant because you don't have anyone who would attend with you, don't be. A great deal of the patrons at a death cafe are there on their own. It's not unusual for everyone to be strangers. 
So go to http colon slash slash deathcafe.com and see if one is being held near you. No more notes for today. I knew this was going to be a short one. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than two years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my family who puts up with me hiding in my bedroom, reading articles and making notes for hours at a time so I can actually do this podcast thing because I really do enjoy it. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 72 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. <laughs>